You're listening to Drawn to a Deeper Story. I'm Kath Brew from DrawnToStory.com. I'm an artist who illustrates and educates about marginalised experiences for positive change with a particular interest in identity and belonging. This podcast is about the lives that challenge us and the difficult conversations around them. And it's a place to listen openly, to absorb people's truths and to learn how to show up differently for the benefit of everyone. Today, I'm speaking with Angie McLachlan. Welcome, Angie. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's very kind of you to have me. Thank you very much for inviting me. My pleasure. Now, Angie has a more unusual job than most. It's something that usually evokes one of two responses when people find out what Angie does. It's either, oh, with a bit of an awkward silence, or a, oh, wow, that's amazing, followed by lots of questions. And I know this because Ange also happens to be my wife. So I've seen this happen over and over again over the years, every single time it happens. So without further ado, Ange, can you please share with listeners what it is that you actually do? Yes, I teach people how to look after people after they have died. And they are very specific groups of people who work with people at the end of life or work in the funeral business or work in areas that are allied to those. So I teach people about the physical care of somebody after death, which can be quite complex. And I have been teaching for the last 10 years with a family of death dummies who are known formerly by their trademark as the Ichabodies death dummies. And these dummies help me to create a safe and ethical, as in we're not working with somebody's real relation Mm -hmm. or a real deceased person. I create an ethical environment where my students can ask any questions that they want to ask, either questions arising from the care that we're doing for one of the dummies at the time, or questions that they've always wanted to ask but haven't been able to find anybody who might know the answer, or questions that they might have felt were, you know, that kind of general term, stupid questions. Mm. Um, Yeah, I always say to people there's no silly questions because someone else wants to know it there'll always be someone else that wants to know it exactly and and it's it's about having that environment where people can open up and even be humorous because Mm. when you're when you're with somebody's um, real relative or friend you know sometimes it's very difficult to work out your own personal feelings about the situation and sometimes Mm. humor humor does arise and uh, you know, sometimes we need to kind of unpick these things. So my work is is on a, a practical, an academic, an informational, a spiritual, a social, um, mm. a historical, all, all kinds of levels, mm. because I never really know who I'm going to be teaching, what they want to know, what they need to know, what their dreams of their futures are in terms of their businesses or their mm their voluntary work that they're going to do. So it's incredibly variable. Yeah, yeah. And how did you get into that? It's not the kind of job that you go to the school counsellor or the careers advisor and they 
go down the list and say, yes, you could be this job. How, how did you actually end up doing this kind of work right way back when you first started? Well, originally when I started I think 32 years ago, I was thrust into having to deal with a very complicated death that was reported to the coroner, and that was the death of my mother. Mm. And like so many people in our society, and obviously I'm talking as a a white English person um, living in, in the UK, so many of us have no concept about what happens when somebody dies. And especially we don't really have a concept of what happens when somebody dies unexpectedly and uh, when the coroner is involved. So I started at the sharp end and it was uh, quite a long time between the time that my mum died and the time that uh, we were able to have her funeral. And at the time I was a French polisher and furniture restorer. So, of course, the first thing I did was to French polish my mum's burial coffin. As you do. (laughs) As you do. And I fitted the handles on the outside and the little pips on the top that stopped the flowers from falling off and uh, fitted the lining inside the coffin and learned how to do that. And it was very like... uh, when I was using the skills that I'd used in um, furniture workshops, um, Mm. um, I thought, I can do this. This is really interesting. And so the time I became committed to (laughs) wanting to to work within the funeral sector (laughs) was at the time when I was arranging probably the most significant funeral of my life. Mm. And in so many ways, I mean, mum's death changed my life. I was precipitated into um, something I would never have dreamed of. No, no, exactly. And that's often, uh, from things you've said in the past, that's also who the kind of clients that you have, isn't it? I mean, I was going to ask you more about your your clients and, and why do they actually want you and you've kind of led beautifully into the people that you've talked about who who want to care for their own well you know i having been trained and, and worked within the traditional funeral directors I, I'll, I'll just say that during the time I, I worked for the funeral directors i carried out every single job that you could think of from working the coffin workshop mm-hmm. being I, I was termed transport manager in the company I worked for and looking after transport. Um, and then I, I went to mortuary school and learned to embalm. So I was actually embalming for several years. But the people that I have tended to work with over the past decade have not been necessarily from the traditional funeral directors Mm-hmm. Some have been people who wanted to start their own businesses. Yep. So they came with dreams of, you know, future aspirations. Some people I've taught have been sole midwives and death doulas who mm-hmm. have been looking after people at the end of life and just wanted to understand more about um, what happened after the, the act of dying um, mm-hmm. phase and, and how they could best support families with you know information and and, Mm. and a practical help and I have taught hospice volunteers who wanted to understand a little bit more about what it's like to sit with somebody who has got some complex medical um, issues and what kind of things they might be be facing there yeah and I've worked with people who have either themselves been 
diagnosed with a life-limiting condition, or they have a a spouse or a relative who has been diagnosed with a life-limiting condition, and they might want to think about looking after that person at home um, Mm. so that they, they can die in their own home and not be in a hospital or a hospice. So there are all different kinds of approaches and every single um, set of of students have completely different aspirations and needs and have come from from different areas. So it's fascinating work. And Mm. I've worked with green and sort of very eco-friendly funeral folk. And I've worked with absolutely traditional funeral folk, including somebody who'd inherited six funeral premises from their father. Mm. And they wanted to know more about what happened in the back room, so to speak, because they weren't being told by their staff. (laughs) And they wanted to be able to ask the questions that they wanted to ask. Yeah, good for them. And to find out as much as they could from a different point of view, so Mm. they could take that information into their business and and move forward. So another group of people have sprung to mind. You know, I've, I've done talks for people who are just interested in death and dying. And I've also mm. done talks for people who are volunteers in bereavement um, mm. groups. And obviously yeah. they don't they don't get involved in the practical care of somebody at the point mm. of death. But it's just, you know, they they again were able to ask information that may have pertained to questions that they were asked by yeah. by their own um, you know, client group. Yeah, yeah. And also your, I guess someone independent out of any work arrangements, family relationships, all of that kind of stuff, yeah. a, a kind of a neutral yeah. professional space where you can be asked questions. Completely. And for, for the last decade, I've been um, self-employed and, and independent of anyone. So I, I will literally go where I'm asked to go and speak yeah. or teach or, or whatever. So if you're talking about the different categories of people that you've the different kind of clients from traditional people up to say the green eco end and there's obviously a huge variation within that of of what happens but we're all going to die and we all need our bodies cared for in whatever capacity and it's kind of you you either dress someone and put them in a coffin or you do the eco way and and dispose of the body in in an eco way so you dress somebody and put them in a coffin you mean <laughs> uh, yeah pretty much yes <laughs> or, a, or a shroud a, an eco coffin <laughs> yeah um but yeah. so if these people are doing very set categories of their work what's different about what you teach in terms of going across this broad spectrum of people so why would someone come to you and your experience and skills and what you're actually doing what is it that you teach that's different well i don't know why people come always but I know what I can provide that they wouldn't necessarily get anywhere else. Okay. Um, the first thing is I come with years of experience. So mm. if I don't know the answer to a question somebody has about looking after uh, a body or or something to do with, with death, I probably know someone in the country or somewhere around the world that mm. they can ask. Yeah. So that's, that's actually quite um, a useful thing. The other useful thing is that I have looked after people who have died from as many kinds of 
things as you can imagine. Mm. Obviously, no death is going to be the same as any other. No. And the thing that I provide by using the ick bodies, the death dummies, is that I can introduce some of the aspects of physical care that it would be very difficult to have open access to without a dummy. So my my dummies are designed to be particularly challenging. So they demonstrate some aspects of complex body care that, especially if you were looking after somebody at home or doing a a very eco-friendly funeral, so that's generally speaking without embalming treatment, there are aspects that you might need to be aware of if you, mm-hmm. especially if you were going to start a business, because at some point or another, and you might have to wait a while, yeah. but you are going to be coming across somebody who's got some incredibly challenging physical characteristics that are brought about by either uh, uh, wounds or drug treatment exacerbating um, decomposition or um, things that actually provide you with a situation that you have to actually really manage your own responses and reactions to. And one of those very important characteristics is is dealing with smell. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't actually realise, or they might realise, but they don't realise until they're actually confronted by um, differences in smell or differences in um, the coloration of somebody's skin. But I imagine also you're not going to want that in front of a family. You you need to have a space where they're going to experience that expression or that that automatic thing, that that reaction that they have when you're not having a family. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And you you don't want to have these experiences Mm. um, in front of a family for the first time. Whether you're dealing with um, mm. somebody of a very great age, um, as in Ichabod, my my main dummy, you know, he's he's supposedly, according to his paperwork, well over a hundred years old. Mm. So it's perfectly reasonable for him to die, age-wise. But you don't want to practice your facial expressions when you're confronted by um, the real scenario, really quite mm. a difficult scenario. Mm. And the dummies actually allow that to happen. And I have um, within the family of of the Ichabodies, um, there are preterm mm-hmm. babies as well. Um, and I work with people who will be looking after these little tiny mm-hmm. folk, either in funeral directors who have the the local authority baby mm-hmm. contracts or you know for for Mm. other reasons maybe training midwives Mm. um and i guess depending on the age of the person who's died also depends greatly on the impact of of that death on the family and therefore whether they want to see the person or not and that thing that we we often hear about in the news and the stories that we've heard over the years of women who've had to give birth to stillborn children or preterm children and then historically haven't been able to see them and this work must be so well I imagine it's so powerful for being able to heal some of those wounds to some not to a full extent but just to start some of that healing by being able to see your child but if a funeral director or a funeral person's not equipped to manage that I, is that the kind of stuff you're talking about and how you you actually help people yeah absolutely mm. um 
I mean, I can't even begin to imagine what it would be like to lose a child. Um, but I have obviously over the years worked with um, looking after very many babies of different sizes. And I've seen what has been possible um, for the families mm. they've come to visit. Um, and it has been humbling. It's been extraordinary to be able to facilitate visits for families where you know really it might not have been possible if there hadn't been somebody skilled to yeah. to look after that that person and that goes for adults as well it goes for looking after people of any age mm-hmm. um i mean obviously there are there are skills that i have as a as a restorative embalmer that i'm not teaching to any of my students but what i'm able to do is to encourage them to think about what is really important in in their work Mm. and how they can best serve the clients that will come to them and especially obviously I'm talking about the the people who are who are going to be producing funerals you know there are instances where somebody who has technical and artistic and chemical skills that can do something that is tantamount to magical to make a visitation possible that couldn't be done otherwise Um, and what I can do is say to people look you know you might want to do a funeral like this but if you're confronted with a situation such as this or this or this Mm. the way that you manage that the way that you encourage the family what you can provide might mean that the thing that you're providing is the funeral ritual itself Mm -hmm. what you might not be able to provide within your business is a really satisfactory visitation Mm. however you might be able to call somebody else in who could do that for you or you might be able to manage the situation through the way you and the family communicate with Mm. each other because obviously every single family or every single death is so incredibly individual and you can't say one size fits all even within the different kinds of funeral businesses I mean you might you might have a a green or eco funeral you might a funeral directors you might have a traditional one but that if you're informed about what is possible then everybody can work together and the sort of hidden gaps that um, have been quite marked um, the gaps in knowledge and the gaps in 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 service um, can be filled and and I'm not saying that you know using an embalmer is going to be the thing that is chosen but I think knowing that things are possible for some circumstances is really quite useful i think knowledge knowledge is really really important yeah well it it comes back to don't limit what the family needs by your own inabilities i guess and in business we're so often told to specialize and to have one particular kind of avenue or one particular thing that we do but i always think with funerals that there is such variation that you never know who's coming through the door and therefore it comes back to what your your vision and mission yeah. is about your business and if you're there to serve clients and to serve families then that means that they're like where does the yeah. where are the bounds of kind of exactly. making sure that you you get out of the way of your business so that you and so it works the other way around as well so 
traditional funeral directors, if they also have the knowledge and the confidence, they're also able to help families facilitate a, a home death and a home funeral and to be able to, to just be there in support. So it's about joining the dots and yeah. understanding the processes and understanding the legal constraints about things and understanding the whys and wherefores. Yeah. Well, and also it it's clearly a very a job of a, of practical skills, but actually given the variety of how people are going to present, like families who are grieving and all the complexities of family relationships and all those kind of things, to me, the kind of work that you teach people about is very much about teaching them to read the room, so to speak, and understanding that the care of the deceased is actually really also about the care of the living and making sure that their expectations are met but there's no there's not a pro forma for that you have to develop that skill to read the room yeah there isn't a pro forma for it and in the UK the slight variations in the way that funerals are done even within the traditional sector can change within a 30 mile radius and it might just be little little tiny things like the height of the trestles or how, how the bearers operate or you know it can be really really subtle things that you you don't notice unless you're actually um, in the business or it can be really massive things but reading the room has so many layers in mm. in my work I mean the first thing that the students have to do when we're looking after whichever of the ick bodies that is is to actually start learning to read the body in this country um, unlike other countries and and for example southern Ireland who bury folk w- within a few days of death but do very social and community orientated wakes with an open coffin and visitations um, to the, the more American term. But with us, we're often waiting two weeks plus between mm. the time of death and the funeral for either the paperwork or the availability of the funeral time, mm. um, wherever it's it's going to be taking place. And people in our society have very little understanding of the natural changes that occur after death Mm. and bodies even in the 30 years that I've been in the business bodies have changed because the drug treatments that are now available um, are so more sophisticated so people are living longer with conditions that maybe they once you know 50 years ago they would not have have, um, survived them so long and the the way that that drugs actually operate within the body after somebody's died, uh, you know, it, it's can be quite uh, devastating. So mm. being able to advise families, you know, if they if they want to wait for for cousin George to come from Australia in three weeks' time, and cousin mm. George wants to see Auntie Henrietta, who's just died, when he arrives. You know, we've got to then bear in mind how we're going to be looking after um, Auntie yeah. Henrietta, yeah, um, for for that period of time, and for somebody who doesn't understand these things and who is bereaved and grieving and in that extraordinary place that so often comes when you're bereaved and, and grieving for somebody who's died, you you go into a sort of it's it's this extraordinary sort of overdrive. Mm. Things can be very black and white. And um, 
you know, I want cousin George to be able to see Auntie Henrietta because, but you as the person who's looking after Auntie Henrietta has actually then got to manage that situation. Yeah. And see the potential problems too. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, prevent you, them before they get there. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and to be able to speak to, to the, the clients, the, mm. the next of kin, you know, mm. and even that is, uh, difficult some some people want to know information other people don't want to know information some mm. people can't handle it at all and so every single scenario and situation is completely different mm. and is there a difference are you seeing changes in the people that don't want to know versus the people that do because we're always told that death is still one of the social taboos that we don't talk about it people still don't like to talk about it people say that but your job and what you do is it there's evidence of that every time if you're in public or you you say what you do so are we getting more comfortable with it do you think is there a difference in the way people are approaching death and dealing with death the way that i would answer that is to say that 32 years ago when i was launched into the business completely unawares and um, <laughs> without realising that that's what was going to happen. There was really no such thing as major, and I use the term family as a, a kind of generic mm. thing, it's not necessarily family, but friends and community. There was not so much family involvement in funerals it tended to be very much that the person was looked after by you know first of all the medical professions wherever they they were whether they died in hospital or hospice or nursing home Um, it was medical and then the funeral director took over and um, worked with the family to produce a ritual that was going to happen there was no such thing as DIY funerals back then the funeral directors in our area who wanted to start helping families have a bit more engagement with doing some of the care themselves or some of the funeral themselves were really looked down upon by the other professionals and it was it there was a big stink back in the day but now we're seeing family-led funerals we're seeing families being hugely involved in the actual ritual aspect Mm. we're seeing people dying at home being looked after by their families and maybe very close friends with the help of maybe Macmillan nurse or hospice at home or whatever we're seeing people being cared for in the home environment we're seeing funerals starting from home funerals are being taken out of the clutches of the very traditional Mm. managed events and they're becoming much more personal so I would say that yes things have changed hugely Mm. over the last 30 years and that is why the the green funeral movement the the home funerals and the eco funerals have started to rise and people are engaging people are talking about death Mm. Um, there are things like the the death cafe movement where people can come and and have cups of tea and cake and and talk about normalize it funerals and what they want to happen Um, without the the presence of somebody who's actually doing a selling yeah um, there will be people there who can who can um, give information Mm. but it's not a selling event 
No, no. And what's triggered that then? Because, I mean, I've been to death cafes where I've heard people say they want a certain thing, but their family, there's no way they know that their family would ever do that. And so there's still this juxtaposition of people who don't want to talk about it and don't want to be doing it. So what triggered, do you think, this change? I think it's very, very complex. And I think there are a number of things that have made that change more interesting over the past 30 odd years. Um, One is the number of women coming into the the funeral and end of life care area. There have always been um, women nurses, of of course, in in hospices and and things. But we've got the sole midwife and death doula movement coming Mm. in. We have the home funeral movement, which is... um, basically i think women really predominate in in that um in this country and also in the us and canada and i think that as far as rituals are, are concerned the thing that i perceive from my own personal engagement in funerals uh, i think the thing that really made a difference to the way funerals were were being done was uh, when people were dying with aids related illnesses mm. back in the in in the uk back in the 90s obviously in, in mm. the, States, yeah, the early 90s happened, yeah. you know it started off in the in the 80s mm. people were, were were then wanting funerals that were personal they didn't want to be at the crematorium for 20 minutes singing hymns that had never had mm-hmm. any meaning to the person when they were alive So person-centred funerals, lots of colour, words against death, to put it in um, Douglas Davis's, he's he's an academic from from Durham University, but put it in in his terms, words against death. Mm. Funerals in the the 90s for the folk that died of AIDS-related illnesses were often protests, protests protests against death and they were celebrations of life and the, mm. the movement that I mean it was completely unwitting it was reactive uh, a lot of it, yeah. but but it, it turned mm. into something that gave permission to everybody else to be able to do many more things at a funeral mm. so suddenly yeah. from being a very sort of somber prescribed ritual suddenly people were given permission to do anything 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 that's legal and decent really do you think that's because also although in the the early 90s with the AIDS crisis there were straight people who were getting AIDS and HIV AIDS as well but but primarily it hit the gay community and that it was a way of being able to control their othering like that they'd been pushed to the margins and they were treated in certain ways and it was like well actually we'll take this back and make it our own. Do you think there was an element of that? I think there's a huge element of that. Mm. And I would also say that there were a number of straight people who died of AIDS-related illnesses that the cause of death probably said something like leukaemia on it. I think that that has probably been written about um, in a number of places. Mm. But for people who were knowingly part of the lgbtqi community back in those days or the alternative community yeah um, who were were open about the fact that they died with you know within this pandemic it was hugely a way of ownership of Mm. the difference and the marginality and 
as I said, it was a protest. It, it was almost, you could make a, a parallel, I think, in some of the funerals that we were certainly involved in, that it was a kind of pride for the dead. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Because pride, although that's been sort of subverted and taken over and it's a social event now, it was a protest when it, when it started. And some of the funerals were just the most outstanding mm. demonstrations of this is who I was, this was my life, these were my friends, yeah. this was my music, this was my colour. This is the way that I want to be represented and this is the way that I am going out. Yeah. I'm not going out quietly. Yeah. I'm going out with all bells, trumpets, fanfares and drag. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> Often. absolutely. Well, and this is the thing, when I come back to the, the reason behind this podcast of having conversations around subjects that we find challenging or we don't necessarily want to talk about, but also in the context of identity and belonging and that identity is so important in terms of when we're living, but also that finality of when someone is deceased, being able to own your own funeral is hugely empowering. And so I think the, the work that you do, I love the fact that you're training people to be able to facilitate that better and to make funerals good in that sense. I mean, you did a funeral recently where I was with you at the end when someone came up and said, that's the best funeral I've ever been to. And then kind of laughed slightly embarrassed and said, I, that's not really the right thing to say. But I think we should be saying that because it's it's equally as important as someone's birth. Yeah, we, we, we absolutely should. Mm. And the fact that we're now able to absolutely do that mm. um, is really important. Um, but people um, are still not necessarily confident enough to know that yet no no so the conversation really needs to to happen mm. but it's as important I mean I, I I'm sitting here thinking Ichabod my my main dummy mm. actually turned out looking like a man who bought me up when I was little uh, he was a retired shepherd up in up in Yorkshire he'd worked on the on the moors with his sheep um, and he looked after me when my mum was at work when I was t absolutely tiny. I mean, he, he must have been late 70s. An appropriate funeral for him would have been the village turning up to the Methodist church mm. and some hymns that would have been close to his, his heart. And it would have been simple, dignified yeah. and very traditional to the village community that he came from. And he, he would have been buried in one of the um, the local cemeteries w with the, the quiet dignity that was was appropriate to to him. And so regardless of who or who the person was and what the circumstances are, whatever happens in the care of them after they have died and the care of the people who are closest to them who are grieving and the, the final burial or cremation or you know whatever is, is, has been chosen if that's done with care with respect with love with dignity and in a mindful way for that period of time that person is the most important mm. important person that that there is if that sense of underlying sacredness mm. is involved then it can be a little you know tiny funeral mm. with five people somewhere mm. or a massive one it can be colorful it can be just very very traditional it can be anything as long as those ethics of of the underlying care mm. are there 
then it's going to be appropriate and it's going to be a good and wonderful funeral. The right intentions always. Absolutely. I think for helping to facilitate people to go out and do that care and to be able to talk to them about the passion that I have about my work Mm. and the difference that 32 years within the funeral business and death and dying, uh, you know, whether it's the academic degrees that I've got that are uh, to do with death and dying or I've just recently done a diploma with the Academy of Forensic Medical Sciences and I've learnt, not in great depth, but I've learnt a bit more information about various other aspects of care or discovery about death Mm. and dying. What's all that joined up, joined up thinking stuff? Yeah, and it's appreciating that commonality of humanity, mm. even though our beliefs, our ways of life, our family relationships, our friendship groups, our our, our needs for our our farewells are so different, but yeah. we have that common common aspect that needs to be respected and responded to. Um, and, and being able to help people do that is fantastic. And so, and so many of my, my students in the past have, have come to learn this stuff because they've been to funerals that they didn't actually think represented the person that died. Mm. I've got another couple of questions, but before we finish, what do you think is the hardest thing about your job? It's very difficult trying to work out what the hardest thing about my job is because I really, <laughs> really enjoy it. I love walking in to a room of eight people who I've never met before and listening to their the dreams about mm. what they're wanting to do um, in the in the future why they're at the course what they need to know I love hearing that and I love being able to support and facilitate those dreams and to be able to help them tweak them if there are areas that they haven't thought about I I love to watch people interact with the dummies it's just mm. I can't I can't mm. describe it. It's it's wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Well, it it's a certainly a, a service that you provide, but it's also so many layers of intangible kind of visceral stuff that comes with that that you can't get from just talking to someone doing like doing an online course or something like it. It's people have asked me to teach it online, and I I absolutely won't. No. Because you have to get in there, you have to get down there, you have to mm. smell the, the smells. Sensory. Yeah. yeah, you have to smell the smells, feel the, the things, you have to mm. take out the drug lines, you have mm. to change colostomy bags, you have to do nappies, you have to you have to care for little tiny preterm mm. um, babies that that are you know, very, very delicate and you you just have to you have to do it you have to feel you have to experience and you have to communicate yeah yeah that's yeah it's wonderful and how do people get in touch if they're interested in getting you to come and talk to them or do some work with them what what's the a plan for you you know really i'm i'm open to to anybody who wants to to get in touch and to talk to me i will i'll go anywhere and talk to anyone you know whether whether i take um bodies with me or just just talk to people about what I do and the best contact is LinkedIn I believe and I can put that in the show notes so that people can find you yeah LinkedIn any any contact on on LinkedIn would be brilliant yeah fantastic well and also if anybody 
is interested in having you come and talk to their organization or or book you for workshop then you can also reach out to me and I can put you in touch with Ange uh, for the future but yeah thank you so much Ange for coming and talking to me I know it's it's something that we often talk about ourselves but uh, and it's often something that people ask me about about you so I just thought it'd be a good chance to to get you on and talk about something that is still a bit taboo but that people do generally want to know about they seem to want to know about so I really appreciate your time and um, for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me.